Now, I picked the book of 1 Thessalonians to be followed by 2 Thessalonians, if the Lord would tarry. It is just, uh, it's not a book that I have preached on before. Um, I enjoy the study that leads to preaching, and so I didn't just want to pull something out of of the last 13 years, but wanted to have the, the blessing and benefit to my own soul um, of, of the study that is involved in preaching a book. So I want to first just give you a brief introduction to 1 Thessalonians so that we understand some of the context surrounding the book, uh, or more aptly, this letter, this epistle. In this case, the author was writing to a very specific group of people, but with the intention that these letters would be shared amongst the churches. He even says so much in 1 Thessalonians. And of course, here we are today with that same understanding that this letter is meant as much for us today here at Calvary Bible Church as well. There's no mystery as to who wrote this letter and to whom Paul identifies himself as the author in that uh, his name is first in chapter 1, verse 1, along with Silvanus and Timothy. Following, and then in 2.18, he writes in the first person, saying, I, Paul. Uh, Paul was writing from Corinth only uh, some months, few months after his initial stop in Thessalonica, while on his second missionary journey. The date is either 50 or 51 AD, and we know this with quite a bit of certainty, um, based on Paul's time at Corinth and how it coincided with the proconsulate of Gallio, which is recorded in Acts 18, verse 12, as well as secular historical accounts. We say 50 or 51 because we're not 100% sure on when Gallio um, took office, and that would kind of tell us 50 or 51. Now let's set the stage for Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And to do that, I would ask that you turn in your Bibles to Acts 17. Acts 17, verses 1 to 9. The situation is again, Paul, on his second missionary journey, along with Silas, they pick up Timothy along the way, and they are headed towards Macedonia. Now Macedonia is north and east of Greece. It's at the very top of the Aegean Sea bypassing Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, as the Holy Spirit had instructed Paul not to go there. They eventually make it to Philippi, again on that north end of the Aegean Sea, where Paul runs into some serious problems with the locals. There's a big surprise, right? This uh, problem brings about a beating and jail time until the local magistrates realize that he and Silas have been wrongly imprisoned based on the fact that they're both Roman citizens. The magistrates beg them to leave. They finally do, which brings us to Acts 17, verses 1 to 9. By the way, it is a little unclear if Timothy is indeed with them at this point or not. Acts 17 and verse 1 reads, Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So we'll just pause here for a moment or two. Know that all of these towns are at the top of the Aegean Sea, and they're all kind of right in a row from east to uh, west, and that's the direction they're moving. But before we continue, just let me tell you a little bit about Thessalonica. The city was in a very strategic location on the Via Ignatia, or Ignatian Way. It was a prominent Roman highway that connected Rome with her eastern provinces, It was important for travel and commerce and went right through the middle of the city. Furthermore, Thessalonica was on the water and it had a 
tremendous sheltered harbor that acted as kind of the gateway between Macedonia and then, of course, the sea, which would then lead them to other places, other countries. And in fact, Thessalonica was really the gateway to Macedonia as a whole. And because of this, it became the capital of that region. And it maintained great wealth, great fortune, and with the largest population in Macedonia. At the time, it was about 200,000 people. The region today has about 400,000 living there. Its inhabitants were predominantly Greeks, but also there was a mix of Roman, Asiatic, and Easterners, including an actual uh, sizable group of Jews. So the synagogue then was influential, and then it had this very strong proselytizing effect on that region. Hence, it was a very strategic place for Christianity to take root. And while there were many wealthy people there, there, of course, was also plenty of poor. People primarily supported themselves through trade and manual labor. Religiously, uh, they were no different really than any other Greek city. Idolatry was the name of the game and Though their general standards of morality would not have been any different than your average Greek city, it seems that they didn't have some of the problems that we read about later on in Corinth, which was known as an extremely immoral city. So with that, let us return to verse 1 in Acts 17, where it says, They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. We're just going to pause again for a few moments. Just as we read, this was Paul's method of operation. He would show up to a new city, and if they had a synagogue, he would start there with the Jews. And that makes sense, right? Especially with what he wrote in Romans 1.16, that the gospel would go first to the Jew and also to the Greek. And while synagogues were primarily made up of Jews, there would also be some God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue due to the fact that some Greeks had had at times become disillusioned with their pagan gods. They've decided to embrace monotheism, the one God model, along with even the purer and moral teachings of Judaism. Now, Paul's teaching when he did this, it centered on two major points. The first was that he used the Old Testament scriptures to reveal facts about the promised Messiah. And specifically, that the Messiah had to suffer, die, And then rise from the dead. This would have been some seriously contradictory teaching to what the average Jew believed. That the the Messiah was, was going to be some political or military powerhouse who would rescue Israel from her enemies. Certainly not someone who would die before any of this would take place. Then the second point that Paul made when he would go into the synagogues was that he wanted to show then... How these Old Testament truths lead directly to Jesus as being the fulfillment of these messianic prophecies. Proving indeed that Jesus is the Christ. And then what you would see happen is, you would see, well, some Jews, some Jews would be converted. Though it was, again, often difficult for them to swallow this whole concept of a a dead Messiah. But you would have a number of Greeks who would believe Paul's message because it it departed from some of the ritualistic and, and even exclusivity of Judaism that didn't necessarily sit well with the Greeks. 
while still maintaining this one God and morals and ethics that centered on really this exemplary life lived by Jesus. In any case, back to uh, Acts 17, verse 4, and some of them, Jews, that would be the Jews, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And eventually Paul and the gang end up at Corinth where he writes this letter to the Thessalonians. (sighs) That was our introduction. Welcome to the book of Thessalonians. Why don't you go ahead and please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole chapter verses 1 to 10. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for Paul and Silvanus and Timothy and the Thessalonian church and all that we will now learn from your word about this church and certainly how that translates to us here and now, 2021. Father, we just ask your blessing upon this time in your word, and it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> this morning, friends, I want you to see the picture of a healthy, solid, God-glorifying church. And as you do, I, I want you to be asking the question, how does Calvary Bible Church measure up to these standards? And remember, too, that if any local church is indeed the things that we will see in the Scripture today, it is because of the individual people that 
make up this local body are indeed those things. So while we are assessing our local church as a whole, we're really assessing ourselves. We're assessing our own individual hearts and minds. And Paul is going to help us do this with four main points. Actually, we're only going to get through two. I had high hopes of getting through this whole chapter, and I really wanted to lay some of the groundwork of of, um, the history and context behind the book, so we're only going to get through our first two points, and, uh, and we'll see when we get to the next couple. The first is Paul offers some greetings. He offers greetings to the church. Back in verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. It's a typical greeting from Paul, but it was a common way to begin a letter or epistle by identifying the writers. We know who Paul is. Silvanus, also known as Silas. Luke used Silas in his writings. Paul uses Silvanus. Silvanus is probably his uh, adopted name from his Roman citizenship. Silvanus is identified by Luke in the book of Acts as an esteemed member of the Jerusalem church. A leader among brothers and a prophet. He was Jewish yet also a Roman citizen. And because of these things, he was a perfect match to be one of Paul's ministry partners during this second missionary journey. Strangely enough, we don't have any more intel on Silas once he leaves Corinth. It's possible that Peter mentions him in 1 Peter 5.12, where he says, Silvanus, our faithful brother, but because it is a common name, we, we can't be dogmatic or know that that is him for certain. Then, of course, there's Timothy, Paul's son in the faith, his protege. They had a very deep and close relationship with one another, He was half Greek. He hailed from Lystra, a city in Asia Minor, and accompanied Paul on his second and third missionary journeys. And of course, Timothy would go on later to be instrumental in the life of the church at Ephesus. And like so many others, he too would become imprisoned. Now, we don't have any mentioning by Luke in Acts that, again, Timothy was with Paul and Silvanus when they founded the church at Thessalonica, you know, it would seem that he, he was there as the next time he's mentioned is in Acts 17, 14, after they leave Thessalonica and they go to Berea uh, with Paul there, who leaves, Paul then leaves to go to Athens. He calls uh, Silvanus and Timothy to come to him there, and then he decides to send Timothy back to Thessalonica to finish the work that they began before Timothy then rejoins them south down there in Corinth where this letter was written from. Now, back to uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and Paul's greeting. Not only do you have the authors of the letter, but you also have the recipients, the church of the Thessalonians. And then some kind of greeting, in this case, Paul announcing grace and peace to them in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We usually put some some kind of a salutation like this at the end of our letters, right? It's sort of a closing. You know, we might write to a, another brother or sister in the Lord. We might say, in Christ, or, or for his kingdom, or all glory to God, and then sign our name. Of course, for Paul, it was never about just identifying the church with God the Father, but also, most importantly, with the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's the whole point of the church, right? It's Jesus' church. The church only exists because of Jesus. And the church can only know God through Jesus. Through the Son. 
As Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father but through me in John 14, 6. And no one can know the Father unless they've first known the Son. In this case, Paul is reminding them that they are, they are bound, they are united, they are, they are knit to God and His Son in an inextricable way. It can't be undone. Grace and peace. Grace and peace was typical for Paul as he announced to his Roman readers. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, of course, being that undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor of God. And peace, a a state of tranquility. But of course, here the difference, friends, is that Paul is referring to a supernatural grace and peace that can only come from God. It is God's all-sufficient grace that brings salvation to us and sanctifies us. And then, of course, it's God's peace that passes all understanding, all comprehension, and then it breaks down the wall of enmity that we have between us and God. Brought on by our sin. Now Paul continues his salutation in a very positive way. Which brings us to our second point. That he offers. Thanksgiving for the church. Thanksgiving for the church. And and he is praying for the church. He says in verse 2. We give thanks to God. Always. For all of you. Making mention of you in our prayers. Now, can we just stop here for a moment and and just imagine, imagine what that would be like if the Apostle Paul would say to Calvary Bible Church that he and others, spiritual powerhouses, again, people like Silvanus and Timothy, were giving thanks to God for all of us and praying to God for all of us, what would that be like? I mean, just think about that for a minute. That should floor us, right? That would be just an an amazing, amazing thing. And it should fill us with such joy and maybe even humility. For I would hope that we would surely say, well, not because of anything we've done, but only because of what God has done. I mean, if we are doing anything right here at this church, it is all God's doing. It is Him working through us, through this local church. It is only because we are an obedient church seeking to do the will of God that thanksgiving would be offered on our behalf. But to think that someone like Paul would commend this church, Calvary Bible, to God and thank him for each and every person that makes up this church, well, then, of course, it begs the question, are we a church that Paul would always be thankful for? Are we individuals that Paul would give thanks to God over? Now, to answer this question, look at some of the attributes that Paul lists for this church at Thessalonica. These are the reasons that Paul is thankful for them. He is thankful for, first and foremost, their work of faith. He says in verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. Now this phrase, constantly bearing in mind, simply being to consistently remember. And what is it that made such an impression that this, this trio of missionaries are constantly remembering about the Thessalonians? Well, again, he says, their work of faith. Now, faith in a salvation sense is brought on by who? 
God, right? Not man. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What's the gift of God in that text? Both. Both the grace and the faith. He continues, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, right? A very familiar text. Yes. Faith, then, friends, is our response to the gospel. We have faith, we have belief, we trust in the gospel, but that only happens because God first grants us the ability to have that faith, to have belief, to have trust. It's all from God. But what Paul is getting at here in this letter Verse 3 is more about the Thessalonian church's ongoing work of faith that is a response to God having saved them and united them as believers. Now, work, the word there, work, in the Greek is aragon with the meaning work. Pretty, pretty straightforward uh, translation there. Granted, it is the work of the Thessalonians that springs from their faith. In other words, it is their faith now put into action. It is faith that now produces works because as James tells us, faith without works is what? Dead. Exactly. It is their ongoing Christian life and testimony as a church that is being commended here. Now, what does this work of faith consist of exactly? (laughs) Well, We're not told by Paul what the precise nature of the Thessalonians' work of faith was here in in this specific text. But let me just offer to you some possibilities. Uh, Some of you may be familiar with a a ministry called the Nine Marks Ministry, Mark Dever's ministry. And it started with a book that he wrote called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. The Nine Marks are all derived from Scripture. Just just listen to them briefly and, and compare these in your mind with Calvary Bible Church. In the book, um, a healthy church is committed to expositional preaching and teaching. Okay, I think we got that one down. That's, That's definitely a hallmark of Calvary Bible. Secondly, a proper biblical theology, understanding the scriptures in a proper way, interpreting them with proper hermeneutics. Then number three is the gospel, that the church is about the gospel and the sharing of the gospel and the applying or application of the gospel. And then fourth, the biblical understanding of conversion to make sure we understand salvation uh, in a correct manner. A biblical understanding of evangelism and that we are indeed evangelizing the lost. A biblical understanding of church membership. You go, is that in the Bible? That absolutely is in the Bible. Uh, Church discipline, sometimes we like to call it church restoration. That's our intent. That's the hope anyway. Um, Eighth is discipleship and growth. And then lastly, church leadership. That leadership is being cultivated within the church. Now, my, my guess is that the church at Thessalonica had most, if not all of these things going for it to some degree or fashion. And think about this, in a relatively short amount of time, since Paul has been there to share the gospel and get converts, and it's now several months later that he's writing this letter back to them. I would also go so far as to say, with all humility, that these are characteristic of Calvary Bible Church. No, not perfectly. But there's not one of these biblical areas that CBC is not actively pursuing, and we praise God for that. I think the question for us here might be more along the lines of, which of these areas can we excel still more in? Excel still more. Secondly, Paul then adds, 
and labor of love. He commends and thanks God for their labor of love. And again, it sounds kind of general, it is. So we, we want to ask, well, what is Paul getting at here? It is a labor of or prompted by love. Now, guess what labor means? Kapos uh, in the Greek. Labor, labor. More specifically, it is less about the actual exertion of a person and more it's about the weariness or fatigue or exhaustion or cost that they experience from that exertion. One commentator has said work, ergon, may be pleasant and stimulating, but labor implies toil that is strenuous and sweat-producing. In 1 Thessalonians 2.9, Paul will say, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Love is, of course, agape, a love that is anything but self-serving, but rather seeks to benefit others first and foremost. So what is this labor of love that is being produced by the Thessalonians? And again, Paul doesn't give us specifics, but whatever it was that they were laboring over to the point of being wearied, they were doing it because of their love. Now, love for what? Love for who? Well, no doubt in this short amount of time since their conversion and the formation of the church, it was love for God. It was love for the Father and certainly for the Son, for, for them having saved the Thessalonians from their sins. It was a love for God and Jesus because of the promise of Jesus' imminent return and resurrection of the dead unto eternal life for those that would believe. And, and I'm sure the fact of God and His Son being Creator creator of the universe, creator of them, was a spark towards their love. And no doubt, too, that Paul and his friends taught the Thessalonians God's two greatest commands, to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and to love others as themselves. Now we think, well, how might this play out practically speaking? And remember that at the time, there was an element of persecution against Christians. In fact, in verse 6, Paul says the Thessalonians became imitators of the missionaries and received the word in much tribulation, yet with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And I imagine this also translated them to them evangelizing the lost. They saw Paul and Silvanus and Timothy's labor of love towards them. Then they decided to take and share the gospel becoming imitators, taking that gospel to others, even amidst their own persecution. That, that's kind of something, huh? Church gets converted, formed, and, and, and boom, next thing you know, man, they're doing this, but they're also doing it under immediate persecution. How many of us would go, oh, okay, wait a minute, that is not what I signed up for, sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to cut ties right here, right now. Now, I also imagine that part of their labor of love was helping to provide for the needs of others, especially the poor. We might remember back to Acts chapter 2 at the formation of the early church there in Jerusalem and how believers began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with all as anyone might had need. And then in chapter 4, verse 32, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were 
common property to them. And then in verse 34, for there was not a needy person among them. That's an incredible statement, isn't it, for any church? That there would not be a needy person among them. So what's our labor of love here at Calvary Bible? What is our labor of love? What do we as a church labor over to the point, friends, of weariness and toil or exhaustion or at cost? And you know what? Frankly, over, let's say, even the last 15 years or so, there's been plenty. There's been plenty. Not to go into great detail, but most of you know that this body has had its share of trials. It's had its share of difficulties. There have been some very hard times where this church has had to labor in ministry. But what was the motivation of that labor? Oh, the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. That was the point. And again, I'm not saying that we here as the church do this perfectly And again, we should always be asking ourselves, where might we excel still more in our labors prompted by love? How about us as individuals? Are you laboring for the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, for the Lord Jesus Christ out of love? Are you expending some holy sweat for whatever it is God has called you to? Or do you kind of prefer just kind of sit back and take things a little easy i mean do you do you find that you kind of back off a bit when the going gets rough are you actively cultivating a love for god and others so that you are motivated towards laboring for the sake of the gospel friends i am convinced that this is the big one This is so vital, it is so important for us to acknowledge, assess, whatever. Because the truth is, you will not labor for that which you do not care about. You will not labor for that which you do not love. You just won't. I labor for my family, right? Okay, I labor for my family. Why? Because I love them. Because I'm close with them. I have spent much time with them. And because of this, I have deep relationships with my family i care for them i would do anything for them now i I don't necessarily feel the same way about someone else's family in terms of how i would labor for them Uh, there might be a family or an individual i'm acquainted with but for whom i wouldn't necessarily labor over in quite the same way sure i would offer help I want to reach out to people and be a blessing and, and do whatever I can for, for others. But, but if I don't have the same relationship with them that I have, say, for my wife or my children, I just won't have as strong a motivation to weary or exhaust myself for them. But when there are those that I get to know, more than an acquaintance, someone I have begun to invest time and energy with, and they... They become dear to me. They become someone for whom I truly love. I will be much more apt to labor for them as well. Friends, what I'm getting at is your relationship with the Lord is no different. If you don't spend time with him and and you don't seek to cultivate that relationship with him, putting out some 
energy, some effort towards that relationship to, to seek to get to know God on a, a deeper level than just, you know, the, the surfacey stuff. The truth is, you will have little or no desire in laboring for him. You just won't. You just won't. And certainly when persecution or difficulty arises, he's gone. You, you will drop him like a hot potato. I would drop him like a hot potato. It, it just, it would. It would be cut ties. Uh, sorry, again, didn't sign up for this. You will retreat back to what is comfortable and easy for you. This is so vital. It is so important for our Christian walk and certainly for the health even of our church. That we would desire to know God again on as deep a level as, as would be possible. And of course, we will always prioritize that which is important to us. Right? You want to know where your priorities lie? Just kind of take a little assessment. Where do you put your time? Where do you put your effort? Where do you put your energy? We need to make sure that we are investing in this relationship with our Lord and Savior. If you can truly say that you love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, and mind, then you will labor for Him. And it'll be a kind of labor that will bring commendation, even thanksgiving. Not that we're laboring for that reason. We're not doing it for the pat on the back. We're doing it because we love God. We love his word. We love his son. We love his church. We love the people that make up his church. Thirdly, Paul points out to the Thessalonians their steadfastness of hope. I love that we sang it as well with my soul. That is all about having a steadfast hope. Steadfastness can also be rendered endurance, perseverance. It's the Greek word hupomone, which means to remain or bear up under in regard to things or circumstances. I don't know, I, I have it just pictured in my mind like some superhero, you know, that gets under the, the building or whatever and just jacks it up on his back kind of thing. That's the idea here. The complete word studied dictionary of the New Testament says it refers to that quality of character which does not allow one to surrender to circumstances or succumb under trial. There's the French reformer Theodore Beza and he made a famous retort to King Henry of Navarre. Sire, it is truly the lot of the church of God for which I speak to endure blows and not to strike them. But may it please you to remember that it is an anvil which has worn out many hammers. We need to be that anvil. I'm sorry, I can't do it without the accent. I got to do it. Just, you know, even if it's wrong, I got to try it. It's the actor in me. We're that anvil. Blows will be struck. But may we wear out many hammers because of our steadfastness of hope. Now, hope, el peace, which is the desire of some good with expectation to obtaining it. That's the key there, right? Desire for some good, but with the expectation of obtaining. In other words, it's not the same kind of hope as in, 
oh, I hope I win the $100 million jackpot lottery kind of thing, you know. But you're really not expecting it unless you're deluded, I guess. Uh, So what is this expectation of obtaining something good even while enduring the most difficult of circumstances? What is this steadfastness of hope spoken of here in? Thankfully, this is something that Paul does elaborate on. Look at verse 3 again. He says, in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. The Thessalonians' steadfast hope was rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, Paul will identify Jesus as the believer's blessed hope as they wait for his return. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, Paul says of himself with full confidence... In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. As the author of Hebrews writes, in regard to the unchanging hope of our salvation and the impossibility of God to lie about his promises, it says, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope that is both sure and steadfast. The Thessalonians, friends, knew that Jesus is the rock upon which their anchor is embedded. Not just kind of grabbing on, barely holding, embedded. This is our hope. It's a rock-solid promise. It's the promise of salvation, which is the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Christ. As Jesus says in Matthew 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end, in other words, the one that has that steadfastness of hope, he will be, what? Saved. Saved. First Thessalonians 1 and verse 10, Paul again commends his Thessalonian readers for being willing to, quote, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Friends, these are the promises that we need to remember in perilous times, or even when the going gets tough, which sometimes feels like every day, right? Whether it's a direct persecution, or it's trials of one kind or another, whether it's the, the political scene today that gets you down, or, or social norms that you think, these weren't normal just a few years ago, or COVID-19, or disease, or death, or family that seems to be wreaking havoc, or a job that you don't particularly enjoy, or kids that have just tried your patience to the limit, or sins of others, or the sins of your own. You need to keep that steadfastness of hope alive and well, and thankfully you have the Holy Spirit in you to help you do that. You have the Word of God here to teach you and guide you. And you have this this awesome church called Calvary Bible Church with fellow believers, family, that are ready to help you and strengthen you and encourage you. Now, of course, what you have seen here is this first presentation of this kind of famous triad of faith, love, and hope by Paul. But know this. Paul is is not so concerned about these virtues alone, but rather what these virtues produce in the life of a believer and in the life of a church. As uh, commentator Edmund Hebert writes, he says, quote, They are the active ingredients of the Christian life. 
finding expression in active work, patient toil, and enduring constancy. Thus, Paul does not link these basic virtues with that which is beautiful or poetic or ethereal, but rather with that which is toilsome and difficult. They are seen to their best advantage amid the rugged demands of daily life. End quote. I would certainly agree. Now, getting back to the end of verse 3, Paul also notes that the Thessalonians were doing these things in the presence of our God and Father. In other words, friends, it, it wasn't just Paul and the others who were remembering the Thessalonians' work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope, but rather, and more importantly, these things were witnessed by God. God the Father Himself, our all-knowing God, all-seeing God, they were done in His presence. And the fact that the Thessalonians were commended for these things and thankfulness given to God in prayer for what was being accomplished in the life of this church, it tells us something about the nature of their faith. It was the real deal. It was the real deal. It, it, It was true abiding, heartfelt, honest-to-goodness, saving faith. Which then leads us to verse 4. Fourth sub-point here. He says, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. Paul is thankful for the fact that God chose the individuals that make up the church at Thessalonica for salvation. He is thankful for their divine election. Their predestining before the foundation of the world as God's chosen. And in fact, their demonstration of these three virtues attests to the assurance of their salvation. There you go. Good test for assurance of salvation. Do you have that work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope evident in your life? Now, we don't have time to (laughs) delve further into this doctrine of election. But know this. This doctrine of election, it's not for unbelievers. It is for believers. You can't explain the doctrine of election to an unbeliever, it would make no sense to them, and, and frankly, it would probably discourage them, for they might come away thinking, well, okay, if I don't believe, then it must mean that God hasn't chosen me, and if he hasn't chosen me, then what's the whole point? I might as well just go off and do whatever I want. You see, the scriptures only speak of those who are saved as being predestined, chosen, or foreknown. These doctrines are designed to be an encouragement for you and I. For believers, because only God knows who he has chosen to save. So we cannot apply predestination, election, foreknowledge to, again, unbelievers. God has a message to unbelievers. The message is repent and believe in the personal work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. The doctrines of predestination and election are to be an encouragement to believers. They are there to show us how totally depraved, dead sinners who play no part in their salvation could ever be saved. Because God would choose us. And he would do so before the foundation of the world. I love this. Picture this. It's like this. It's like a huge sign 
hanging over the narrow gate to heaven. Okay, And to those who are outside and not saved, the sign says, whoever will believe and enter will be saved. Now, many see the sign, but only a few enter through heaven's gate. Those who do enter into heaven's gate, we get to look back from heaven's side, where we see on the other side, that same side says this, chosen and predestined before the foundation of the world. And our hearts are filled with joy. Oh, thank you. Hallelujah. What a savior. Because there would have been no other way for me to have been saved. Getting back to Paul and his thankfulness as we wrap things up here. For God, having chosen the Thessalonica believers, he is also thankful that they are indeed brethren. In that special and unique spiritual sense, they share the same pedigree of being adopted by God, brothers and sisters in Christ, even the bride of Christ. There is a common bond that they all now share, that we all share here at Calvary Bible. As there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. If you are sitting out there today and you may be wondering if indeed you are Christ chosen, Christ elect, here's how you can know. Repent and believe right here, right now. And you know that you were predestined, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. That your name is indeed written in the book of life. That is God's call for you. To believe and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Please believe. Please put your faith in and trust that you are a sinner who needs a Savior. And the Savior is indeed Jesus. He loves you. He desires for you to put your faith in him. To believe and trust in what he accomplished on the cross by his death. His burial three days dead in the ground before his resurrection on that third day. Securing for you forgiveness of sins. And eternal life, good for eternity. Know, before you walk out of here this morning, that again, your name is written in the book of life, that you are the chosen by believing in him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for what we have been able to, I pray, learn and glean from this just awesome Thessalonian church. And Lord, I pray that for us, for Calvary Bible Church. Lord, you have done just some remarkable works over many, many years in and through this local body of believers. And I pray, Lord, that as we go forward, we would always be assessing both as individuals and corporately as a church where we stand with these three things that we have looked at today. That work of faith that labor of love and that steadfastness of hope, may this be said of us. I pray for any here this morning who need to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. 
that, Lord, even right now, they would be praying a prayer to you of forgiveness and trust in Jesus. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.